You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. If you would please open your Bibles to Esther chapter 6. Esther 6. Most of you don't know this, but I was planning on hitting two chapters today, but I decided to just do one because chapter 6 is a pivotal chapter in the entire book of Esther. So, Esther chapter 6. If any of you are familiar or have ever met or seen a Gideon missionary, they're the the guys who go around handing out the little New Testament Bibles, right? They're like flooded in every hotel, everywhere you go. And I was trying to think, I remember this story, but I could not recall the exact location that I heard this story, but I heard it from a Gideon, if you will. And he was talking to me about how he had gone to this other country and he was handing out Bibles and he was handing out a New Testament Bible and he handed a Bible to a gentleman on the street. And the man took the Bible and kind of in a fit of rage, just turned up to the building. It was like a one-story building and just chucked the Bible up onto the roof of the building And that kind of like ended the interaction and the conversation at that that point. And the two of them went separate ways. At the same time that that event was taking place, there was a man who was kind of in a spiritually bad place. He was really distraught. He was really giving God a piece of his mind. He was frustrated. And the man looked up to the heavens and he said, God, if you're real, just show me a sign. And about that time, a Bible smacked him on the backside of the head because he was standing on the roof of the building crying out to God. And it was that New Testament Gideon Bible. The man who was smacked upside the back of the head saw that as a clear sign from God. And so he sat down and he read that, in, that entire New Testament in, in one sitting. And he ended up following up with the contact information on the inside of the Bible and let them know that he is wanting to follow Jesus. And then that's how they figured out how the story circulated around. They retraced their steps. And so what we see here is really an act of grace. Grace is unmerited favor. God bestowing his favor upon somebody, though they did nothing to deserve it. And so this means that none of whom God has been has bestowed his grace has done anything to make him happy or to like bend his ear or catch his eye and go ooh I want to be gracious towards them the man standing on the roof that day did not make plans to meet the grace of god the man on the roof could not have orchestrated or planned the sequence of events to take place in the way they did in the time that they did in the uh, on the part of the planet that it did happen There's only one answer here, and that it is God's grace, and that God showed up, and He is the only one who could have orchestrated the event. And it was the persistent grace of God to show up in a place that was unexpected that would ultimately change that man's life forever, completely. And so in today's story, grace will show up by the invisible hand of God, and we will be able to see it. Mordecai is about to, if you will, get smacked upside the head with the unexpected grace of God. The favor of God is about to come upon him in a mighty way. And so today we'll see God's favor come upon him. 
in a way that no one could have expected. Nobody could have orchestrated. Nobody saw it coming except God alone. And so today what we're going to see is really a grace that changed everything. A grace that changed everything. So just kind of a quick recap from the previous Esther sermon. Uh, what, we, what we had was um, the decree had gone out to all the provinces of Persia that the Jews would be annihilated, they would be destroyed, they would be completely killed in about a year's time. Because Haman, second to the king, had a little bit of beef with Mordecai because Mordecai, the Jew, would not bow down to him in the king's gate or at any time in any way. So Haman's ego was hurt, so he decided, you know what, I'm going to win the king's trust over, I'm going to get his power, and I'm going to decree this awful act. The decree goes out, the Jews are in mourning. They are lamenting, it says. All of Susa really is lamenting because the Jews are also friends of non-Jews in the area and amongst the province. So Mordecai shows up and gets Esther's attention and says to Esther, hey, you're the queen, you have got to do something about this. So Esther decides to take three days of prayer and fasting to figure out how it is that she's going to approach her husband, the king, because she hasn't been summoned for 30 days. And if she decides to just show up without an invitation, she runs the risk of losing her life. So after three days of prayer and fasting, she shows up, she approaches the king in his court, and he extends to her his signet, offering her favor. And so through her, um, through really her winsome uh, act through her wisdom, she was able to win the king over. She was able to pull Haman into the conversation and was able to invite them to a banquet the following day to where she would actually reveal what it was that was on her mind. And so chapter 6 is set in the evening, in the night of the same day that Esther had approached the king. And so it is in chapter 6 that we begin to see the invisible hand of God's grace at work. And so I broke this down into two sections, one really small section and then one larger section. The first three verses, so verses 1 through 3 is one section, and the verses 4 through 14 as the second section. So if you are taking notes in that kind of way, this is just so you know. Verses 1 through 3, we begin to see an interrupting grace. Let me read chapter 6, 1 through 3. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who had guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on the king Assyrus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Father, I pray that your word would change us, that it would impact us, that it would convict us, that it would humble us, that it would draw us near to you, that it would remind us of the goodness of the gospel of Jesus. And so I pray not only would I be able to clearly preach your word this morning, but that we would also be actively listening to your word this morning. God, this is your word. We love your word. We love you. We desire you. 
make much of you this morning, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. An interrupting grace. So this is the same night, right? The same night that Esther had approached the king and Haman. This same night, everybody went to bed. Haman went to bed. If you remember, he went to bed really sleeping well. He was really frustrated after he hung out with the queen and the king. Like he was in good spirits with the queen and the king. But then as he was going home, he saw Mordecai again. And Mordecai squashed his ego because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him another time. So he got really angry. So he went home. He hung out with his wife and his crew saying, I don't know what to do. And they're saying, hey, look, just kill the guy. Just build gallows 50 cubits high. Ask the king in the morning to kill Mordecai and you'll have a great day tomorrow. And you'll be able to hang out with Esther at her banquet and we'll all be able to celebrate together. Haman says, that's a great idea. Haman builds the gallows. He most likely has a wonderful sleep and he has plans to wake up really early to address the king, to take care of this minor issue of his. And so he shows up per the advice of his wife. And so here is a unique part of the story. Neither Mordecai nor Esther have any idea that Mordecai's life is hanging on the balance. Humanly speaking, Mordecai is as good as dead. Esther is not approaching this situation. They don't even know this situation is existing, right? But this is where we begin to see the invisible hand of God at work. And so here's where we begin to see also in the book of Esther, these ironic reversals take place. Everything we expect to happen against Mordecai and for Haman will ironically reverse and happen for Mordecai and against Haman. And so we see this sleepless night of the king. Haman most likely had a wonderful night's sleep. Maybe even Esther had a wonderful night's sleep. It couldn't have gone even better for her. But there's one person who did not have a good night's sleep, and it was the king. We don't know the exact reason. We're not sure why. He has some form of insomnia, if you will. But here's what makes the book of Esther so pivotal. This act of sleeplessness is the one event that changes the entire book. It changes the entire trajectory of the course of redemptive history for the Jews. If this sleepless night does not happen, there is no salvation, if you will, at least for Mordecai. But we know, look, there's no, there's no chances, there's no coincidence, there's no luck in life. Something or someone is really behind how history is playing out and what is taking place. I mean, of course, when we read the Bible, we see how God revealed himself to Pharaoh and how God revealed himself to Cyrus, king of Persia. And all of them knew what God was up to and they acted. But God hasn't revealed himself to King Osiris. And yet it is God who is behind everything. And so the king has insomnia. He can't sleep. Funny thing. I woke up last night, couldn't sleep. And I was like, huh, this is ironic. So I sat there for a couple hours trying to fall back to sleep. It's neither here nor there. So the king's solution is, to his insomnia is he has really multiple solutions. He could eat food. He could get a nice warm glass of milk. He could drink some wine. He could call upon any of his concubines to just ease his mind. But instead, he does this. He calls upon the book of memorable deeds. He pulls out the scrolls, has his servants pull out the scrolls, the chronicles. And these chronicles are really 
It's a non-riveting read. It's not exciting at all, right? It's a, it's a, as one commentator says, a stock catalog of victories won, lands conquered, tribute imposed. Ultimately, this would put the king to sleep. Like, it, I need to be bored out of my mind, so why don't you just read to me everything that we've done that's been chronicled down. And it so happened, right, if we talk about chance and luck, it so happened also that the young men had read a part of the chronicle that talked about Mordecai. And so now the interrupted sleep became more of a permanent interruption. Sleep, at this point, once Mordecai's name is mentioned, is really no longer an option. It's completely off the table. So the records that are read to the king remind the king that Mordecai had saved his life back in chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. This is when the king's eunuchs were standing in the king's gate, just openly talking about, chatting about, going against the king, trying to plot against him and kill him. And Mordecai, being loyal to the king, said, yeah, I'm going to report this to Queen Esther. Queen Esther reports it to the king. The king takes care of business, but then nothing is done after that. And of course, that is on God's timing and God's purposes. It, it is a common or was a common practice for Persian kings to reward those who assisted them. So whenever something did happen where the king was saved by somebody else, they would award that person. They would honor that person. They would recognize that person. And of course, they would record that information in the chronicles or the member, uh, uh, memorable deeds, if you will. And so the king is startled. He's kind of thrown off. Hold on. What did you say about Mordecai? And so he kind of has to reaffirm. And he says, hey, um, Mr. Young Man, what was the honor or the distinction that we bestowed upon Mordecai for this? And he said, nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so this troubles the king. The king is not going to go back to sleep. He can't sleep at this point. Now he's really troubled that he dropped the ball in doing something that a king was supposed to do for people who saved the king's life. And so at this point... Everything is really about to change in the story of Esther. I've talked about this before. When we look at the, the story of Esther, or if you think about how you, how you talk about Esther with friends or think about it, we often think in terms of heroes and villains. Like he, Esther is a hero in the story. And granted, in the story, lowercase s, she is a hero, if you will, and Mordecai is, and Haman is the villain. But really, we know who the true hero is. The true hero is God, the one who's in control, right? Esther and Mordecai, they're completely clueless that Mordecai is about to die. Esther did everything she knew that she was supposed to do. She was faithful. She was obedient. She won the king over. She won uh, Haman over. She did everything she knew she was supposed to do. If she knew about the plot to kill her father, she too would have had a sleepless night. Most likely she slept like a baby. But here's the thing. Even though this horrible thing was about to happen, God had it covered. He had it covered. So not Esther nor Mordecai are actually the heroes in the story. God is the hero. And he's a hero in the most unimaginable ways, right? Through the act of something that is really so ordinary, insomnia. I know everybody in here has dealt with insomnia, most likely, in one form or another. 
And so here God, He's using insomnia. Again, not parting the seas, not a burning bush. He's not shaking the earth. He's not raining hailstones. He's not swallowing Haman up in a giant fish. He's using insomnia as a means, as a pathway to ultimately spare His people, to save His people. If this sleepless night does not occur, then Mordecai in the least will be dead. And maybe even the sparing of the Jews wouldn't take place. And so all the root of the question about a hero or who is a hero comes down to control. Who is really in control? So who's really in control in your life? Who's really the hero of your life? And look, yes, you and I are called to be obedient. We're called to be faithful. But listen, God's will and plan and purposes is not thwarted by our obedience or lack of obedience. That is our disobedience. God doesn't go, man, I wish you would have done this because then I could have done that. God is going to work out his plan. And it just so happens that he uses our obedience. He uses our faithfulness as a means to fulfill his plan. And granted, he even uses our disobedience to fulfill his plan. So think about control. Who's in control of your life? Or maybe who's not in control in your life? Maybe are you, are you stressed? Are you anxious? Are you worried? I know we're an anxious people. I had coffee the other day with a friend. Um, she's in her, I think in her 70s. She moved back over to Ireland and she and I had coffee the other day because her son and I are friends within the church planting network. And she came back and she says, I don't ever want to come back here again. It is so peaceful. There's not a whole lot of anxiety or pressure to do anything in Ireland. I was like, please tell me more. And she says, when I come back here, it's just like the pressure's on to do something. I know we're an anxious people. I know we're anxious. And if so, if we're that type of person and we're feeling that way, it's probably because we're struggling to just let go. And maybe God is teaching us through our anxiety and through our worries and through our stress that the only thing we are able to do is just lose control. So here's some simple counsel. Why don't we stop trying to control everything and trust in the Lord? Right? It's just very simple. Just just stop it. (laughs) Just quit it. But maybe you're not the anxious person like me. Maybe you're not the stressed person, but maybe you're the person who's 100% in control. You have everything on a spreadsheet. Everything's mapped out. Your money, your relationships, your, your family, your home is on point. Everything that you've decided to do on your bucket list, you've been able to do up to this point. But my question is, what happens then when the unthinkable happens? What happens when cancer shows up in your home and takes a loved one? Or COVID does show up. I have two friends who lost their fathers in the last two months as a result of COVID, completely blindsided by it. What happens when you lose your job or the places you want and you dream to go visit as a family all of a sudden shut down and you can't do it? What then? So about eight years ago, a little over eight years ago, there was a really traumatic event, if you will, that happened in our lives that really changed a lot of things. So it, it kind of fell in New Year's, so 2011, switching to 2012. 
It happened during that time. So just really less than a year before we launched Redeemer Church, something crazy happened. We were living really on, I was making minimum wage. It was a family of four. We were planning on having an additional uh, child to the family. We were taking in every aspect of government assistance we could because we needed to because the money I brought in never paid the bills. All right. But we saw that our family was outgrowing our car. We literally were having a hard time fitting in our car. I don't know if you've seen me, but I'm a, not a small human being, and we don't make small human beings either. And so our car needed to be large, and so we needed a bigger vehicle. And so we were stressing, we were, we were straining, we didn't know what to do. And then this unique event happened, New Year's. So we celebrated the New Year's. And went to bed after the ball dropped at midnight. And then around four in the morning, Gabby must have been two years old, two or three, if you will. And she woke up crying and her entire chin down here was swollen. Like you couldn't tell the difference between her neck, her chin and her face. It was just puffed up and it freaked us out. We've never seen anything like it. So I got her in the car at four in the morning, buckled her in. I got in the car. I didn't buckle up yet. I'm like, I'm going to buckle on the way to the hospital. So I I take off down the road. We're at the corner of Whiteside and Jefferson. I take a left on Jefferson, meaning I'm heading north. The road is empty. There's nobody on the road. As soon as I turn on the road, I look in my rearview mirror, and there are headlights coming at us faster than I could even respond. All I did, no seatbelt on, grabbed the steering wheel and went, oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) And that car hit us and shot us straight into one of those metal power poles. To this day, you can go down Jefferson Avenue and you look at the metal power pole that has black on the very bottom where they had to replace the metal. That's from me. My head went through the steering wheel into the windshield. The windshield filleted me back like a fish. I was knocked out. I came to. Gabby was crying. Smoke was going up in the hood. I had no idea what was going on. Whoever hit us, it was a hit and run. They took off. I thought we were under attack. I had no idea. So I grabbed Gabby, and I just started running. Um, It was an awful night. It was an absolutely awful night. And there's a more comical part of the story that you can ask Chanel about later that happened while I was getting put in the ambulance, but that's not for this point. But had had that event not occurred, Grace would not have showed up in a unique way. And here's what I mean. We got all the money we needed to buy a new vehicle, as a result of that car crash happening. (laughs) I would ask the Lord to never do that again, but had that not happened, we would not have had the money to buy the van that we now are driving and not go into debt. It was a very weird, unexpected grace. God was in control. I was not. We were not. So I share that story Because I think you and I need to stand on something that is more secure. That is more secure than our human-made security and control. Because our human-made security and control will always fail and will always make us anxious, will always make us stressed and worried. But here's what we can stand on. We can stand on that God does not lie. He cannot lie. His words are true. His words are irrevocable, meaning they cannot be changed. Once he puts out a promise, once he puts out his covenant, it cannot be changed. So that means God's will and his promises 
have been, and will continue to be fulfilled. So do you, church, know God's Word? Do you know His promises? I mean, we don't know all the details of Mordecai and Esther, but we know that they turn to God, and the only thing that they have is to turn to His Word and stand on His promises of what they know about being the Jews, God's chosen people. But what about you? Do you know who you are? Do you know God's Word? Do you know His promises? It's His Word that is certain. And those certainties free us. They free us from control. And they free us to assurance. So listen, God, He will awaken the night. He will awaken the most trying of circumstances. He will awaken the most deadly of oppositions. He will awaken the most costly paths of obedience and shift their outcome in order to bestow upon you His favor, His grace. God is jealous for you because you are His through His Son, Christ Jesus. So God is in, He's the hero who's in control of your story. That's who God is. So then, believer, begin to reinterpret your life, reinterpret your story, not through your own personal lens, your own personal goals, your own control, but through the lens of your gracious, promise-keeping God. And see how He has orchestrated life in such a way that even this morning you would be here in the pews hearing about His grace. You're here not by chance or luck, but because God has orchestrated this even this time. And so then, believers, we can lay our heads down and sleep at night because our lives are in His hands. Listen to what Psalm 4, 8 says. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you, O Lord, Make me dwell in safety. The psalmist is not talking about safety in American terms of not getting hurt or not getting sick, but he's talking about safety in the sense of being um, completely wrapped up and confident in God, in His promises, His covenant, His will. So then, rest well, my brothers and sisters, knowing that your Father desires for you to rest fully in Him knowing that He's keeping watch even through the night, never growing tired. He never grows weary. He just simply loves you. So sleep with rest. Sleep with that great comfort. And when grace interrupts, we see that it always then humbles us. A humbling grace, verses 4 through 14. Let me read those verses. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows, and he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court, and the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom should the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, 
and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king hears these uh, chronicles, the memorable deeds being read to him, and he hears the story about Mordecai, and so he wants to seek some advice on how he needs to respond here. And remember, Haman had a great night. He had a great night with his family. He had good advice from them, if you will, because it all was protecting his ego. It was all puffing him up. And so he comes into the king's court, ready to talk to the king. And man, initially, everything is just going really, really well. And so he comes in early, and I'm just sitting here thinking, man, how early did he come in? At what time did the king wake up? And how long was he reading these things for Haman to show up? Whatever it was, Haman came in really early because for him, it was going to be a really good day. And it just so happened, if you would, that Haman was the first and only official available in the court. Verse 5. And so then the king seeks his advice. And here's some factors here that we need to remember as he's seeking his advice. The king does not mention Mordecai's name. And this wasn't cunning on behalf of the king or stealth that he was just kind of trying to hide this. I mean, he had no reason to think that Haman had issue with Mordecai. There there was nothing there. He just had a very straightforward question to ask, and it didn't matter who it was. It could have been Mordecai or anyone else. And that is necessary. It's interesting because had he mentioned Mordecai's name, the conversation could have taken a drastically different turn. Perhaps Haman would have had opportunity or time to try to talk the king out of it or even plot in another way to have Mordecai killed. The second thing we need to just be aware of is that Haman's ego is on cloud nine. This is exactly where he needs to be to answer the question the way that he does. And so it just plays into the reality that God isn't just orchestrating events. He's also orchestrating emotions and feelings in all of this. So there is no better person then to answer the question that the king asks. So you have a little Q&A here. The king asks a question and then Mordecai answers in verses 6 through 9. I love it. Haman, this is the irony, Haman thinks it's all about him. I mean, why wouldn't he? He went to bed with his ego puffed up. Everything was about him. The whole world was evolving around him. And so why wouldn't the king also be losing sleep at night thinking about him? And so the king asked the question, and then I love verse 6. It's so much like Haman here to kind of take a moment to have a little pep talk to himself 
going, oh, he must be clearly talking about me. This is your time to shine. Strike while the iron's hot, if you will, right? And so Haman then answers the king, and he answers in the most perfect way, in a way that whatever he says is going to give the most highest possible honor. Haman didn't come in to be casually honored, to be partially honored, no, to be greatly honored at the highest level. So here, great king, let me tell you what you should do. You should have royal robes that have been worn by you, upon whom, whose body that the, the crown has sat. Those robes should be bestowed upon this person. And the horse that you have ridden on, this person should ride on that horse as well. And then you should have a servant, another noble official, dress this person up in your robe and, and put this person upon your horse and then lead them through the town in a procession, proclaiming on the city square, look at the, the honor of this person in whom the king delights. I mean, do you not think that Haman had thought about this before? <laughs> like Haman was dreaming about this and boom, the time came. And then the king's response in verse 10, it's kind of like this. Haman, I knew I could trust you to give me the right answer for this. And I knew you wouldn't let me down. Now, hurry. Go and do everything. It's kind of like at that point, like Haman's like, yes, I'm ready to go. And do it for Mordecai. And you will be that royal, that noble official who will make sure that everything that you just said, because it's perfect, Haman, will happen. Man, not a boy, Haman. I'll see you tonight at the, at the banquet, right? That's kind of what went down. And so here's some observations. The king doesn't seem to really know about Haman's and Mordecai's issues going on here. Remember, last, last time we talked about this, Esther didn't even know that the decree went out. I'm not really sure how communication is handled in the capital city of Susa. But regardless, the king doesn't really know what's going on. The other odd thing here that I found out is that, or what I was paying attention to, is that the king is wanting to honor Mordecai, he says Mordecai the Jew, for these deeds, and yet Mordecai is a Jew. One of the people whom are going to be eradicated, annihilated, destroyed. And so I found it odd that the king wanted to honor somebody that ultimately would be completely destroyed or wiped out. But here's what it is. The king is not doing this because he feels bad for Mordecai, because he feels bad for the Jewish people, because he's sorry for them. The king is doing this to save face. He's doing this for PR purposes. He wants to look good like a politician before the people. He wants their vote in the next election cycle, if you will. And so he does this for his own sake. Again, the egos of the pagan rulers are at play here. And so we see then in verses 11 through 13, Haman's humiliation and Mordecai's exaltation. That ironic reversal. It should be Mordecai's humiliation and Haman's exaltation, but it is not that. Haman's humiliation, Mordecai's exaltation. Mordecai is honored. He's being paraded around, being pronounced with honor and delight before the king. Mordecai is exalted before his enemy and before the capital city of Susa. And then verse 12, when everything is done, what does Mordecai do? He goes back to the king's gate. He goes back to business as usual. There's something 
that's going on inside of Mordecai's soul. He's not going back. It doesn't say he has a celebration. There's confetti. There's wine. They're excited because Esther has done it. No, none of that at all. Business as usual because why? Destruction was still looming. Still looming. But we see in verse up to verse 13, Haman's humiliation. He does everything for Mordecai that he had hoped would be done for him. Like this is the worst case of foot and mouth disease, right? He's like, man, I wish I wouldn't have said all of these things. I was eating them. And now everyone sees what is going on. And we remember in the story that the people in the king's gate were aware that Mordecai was not bowing down to Haman. And so now here is Haman pulling Mordecai through the city, honoring him before even the people in the king's gate. And so after this is all done, Haman saves face. He doesn't show anyone his emotions. He's, he's doing exactly as the king has said. And then when he's done, he jets home. He runs home and it says he's mourning. He's covering his head. So he is in grief. But think about how strikingly different that is than the grief and mourning we see the Jews do in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. They, the Jews, were lamenting and grieving with hope that God would act. Here, Haman is not mourning in a godly sense. It's the result of his ego, his idol being completely crushed. And so Haman ran ran back to his crew, ran back to his wife, ran back to the wise men. And the response here is a complete 180 from what they said in chapter 5, verse 14. I mean, the pagan response here is really biblical wisdom. This is the only time we really see biblical wisdom, not even really from Mordecai and Esther, but here from the wife of Haman. Basically saying, uh, yeah, it doesn't seem like you're going to overcome Mordecai because he's a Jew and you're pretty much good as dead right now. Right? It's like the worst, my bad, ever we've seen. Right? It's like, what kind of friends are you? What kind of wife are you? You told me to do this. But here's something we need to pay attention to as well. This unrelenting grace for Mordecai, this favor, this exaltation for Mordecai, wasn't something that happened in a vacuum. This is something that was even predicted in Scripture. Let me remind you. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 specifically, God promised Abraham that he would bless those who bless Abraham and he would curse those who curse Abraham. Okay? We learn in Genesis 13 who it is that are blessed and cursed. God will bless those who bless Abraham and his offspring, and he will curse those who curse Abraham or his offspring. So the blessings and the curses are also linked to the offspring of Abraham, the seed. We get into Exodus chapter 17. We're moving down the timeline here. Israel was coming out of Egypt, and the Amalekites decided to make war with them. This is the story when Moses had to hold up the staff. And God said in Exodus 17 that he would curse the Amalekites forever, just like he promised back in the book of Genesis, okay? We jump to 1 Samuel 15, moving down the timeline again. King Agag, king of the Amalekites, and King Saul, 
king of the offspring of Abraham, go to war, essentially, because the Amalekites are still cursed for rejecting Israel. So you have the seed of the offspring of God and really the seed of the serpent of the evil one coming face to face. And now we fast forward to the book of Esther and we see Haman, the son of King Agag, stands cursing Mordecai, the seed, the offspring of Abraham, the son of King Saul. And so here Haman thinks that he stands a chance. And he doesn't. Because God's word is clear, going all the way back through the ages to Abraham, that God promised to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse them. Haman is cursing God's chosen people. He doesn't stand a chance. So God's grace has a way of humbling you, has a way of humbling you. But understand, not all forms of humility are created equal. Mordecai was humbled when he knew His people were going to die. He humbled himself before his God, fasting and praying, needing God to fulfill his promise ultimately. But Haman, on the other hand, he was humbled when his ego was crushed. His humility didn't lead him to lament and hope in God, but mourn the loss of his ego, his idol. He didn't turn in repentance to the God of the Jews, but just turned inwardly. And grieved his own loss. Both experienced humility, but both have different trajectories. And while Haman was doing this, verse 14, he was taken away. He was called to the feast of Esther. And yet another brilliant move of God in history. Haman had zero time. Zero time to come up with another plot. Zero time to come up with another plan. Zero time to do anything at all. It was clear. He was against God. He was against his people. And so now he had to go face the king and Esther. And we will see that next week in chapter 7. So let me ask you. Are you under God's cursing or his blessing? As the people of God here, are you under his cursing or his blessing? Cursing meaning you're living by your own law, your own standards, your own goodness, your own definition of blessings like we talked about before. Or are you living under blessing? That is, living under God's law, God's grace, God's goodness, God's will. Which is it? I think we need to heed this warning from this commentator who says, our fall could be just as sudden and inescapable as Haman's taking us from our present comforts to face a holy God in an instant. We have to understand none of us are above the wrath of God. We still have time to repent. We still have time to turn to the seed of the Jews. Jesus Christ, according to Galatians 3.16, is the promised seed of Abraham. And that's good news because if we know the gospel of Jesus and we know the ministry of the Apostle Paul, we know that the gospel is to the Gentiles also. The book of Galatians, a book to Gentiles. So by faith in Jesus, we are considered then offspring of Abraham. That means we don't have to be Jews. We don't have to be from the bloodline of Mordecai. But by faith, we are of the offspring of the seed of the head-crushing serpent, or Savior, excuse me. So faith, then, is the DNA that links all of God's people for all time. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, but it's faith in Christ. 
And it is Jesus that the great king delights in and honors. So the Father is pleased in Jesus. And if we are in Jesus, then the Father delights to honor us too. He lays upon us a robe of perfect righteousness. And so here we see that Mordecai is a type of Christ in his exaltation. That means Mordecai's exaltation is like the exaltation that Jesus will receive once we get to the New Testament. But understand, the exaltation of Jesus comes only after the cross. So before there's exaltation of Christ, there is the humility of Christ. Listen to God's Word in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning Jesus didn't count himself above the Father, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Before his exaltation, there is his humiliation. The humility of Christ results in him becoming a curse so that we might receive blessings as sons and daughters of God. For Mordecai, he received that royal robe, that horse, that procession. But for Jesus, before there's a righteous robe of glory, there's a scarlet robe upon his, his bruised body. Before there is Jesus, as we see in the book of Revelation, the rider on the white horse, there is a cross mounted upon his back. Before there is a crown of glory, there is a crown of thorns pressed upon his bloodied forehead. Before there is honor in the resurrection, there is mocking in the streets by his own people, the Jews. Before there is the final blow to the seed of the serpent, there is a humility to take upon himself the sins of all the Hamans of the world. So we see this procession of Mordecai reminds us of an exalted Jesus, but also the curse of Haman reminds us so much of the needed bloody work of Christ to atone for the sins of sinners. And that is grace. Grace tells us that not even Mordecai is exempt from the wrath of God unless he has faith in God. If this story took, a, took place apart from the gospel, apart from hope, apart from faith, then all we have here is the survival of the fittest. Mordecai seems to be on top. He's winning. But at the end of the day, both Mordecai and Haman would be equally condemned to hell. So it's faith in Christ alone. Jesus' humility and exaltation leads then to our humility, to our exaltation, to our righteousness, and not our own exaltation, not our own righteousness, but the, the righteousness and the exaltation that is found only in Christ. So does that grace even humble you this morning? Does it bring you to your knees? And look, Philippians, we just read, said that all will 
bow the knee before Jesus. That means there will be some who willingly bow and there are those who are unwilling to bow. But all will bow one way or the other. Mordecai willingly bows. Haman would have to be forced. But what about you? What about us? Your humility to worship Jesus will ultimately result in your exaltation with Him forever. So I ask again, are you under God's cursing or are you under His blessing this morning? I hope to God you're saying His blessing. And it's not anything to do with what you've done or said. You know, your spiritual disciplines or anything like that. But only by what Christ has done on your behalf. Are you in Christ or are you not? It's very simple. Do you believe that He's the Son of God, the Savior of the world, or do you not? To live under the blessing is to have the same exact promise and hope of assurance that Mordecai has, even in this situation that he has no control over. But to live under the curse is to have the same sort of temporary happiness and wavering and shakable assurance as Haman does in this story. So where are you? So maybe when grace changed everything in your life, you were not standing on the roof of a building, giving God an earful, only to get smacked upside the head with a Bible. Maybe you did. be interested to know your story. But we all have unique stories. We all have unique stories of God's grace coming to us. But whatever your story is, and it differs, all of us have the same conclusion. It was God alone. God alone. God's grace came and completely interrupted and humbled our lives. And that is good news. So in the same way that God's grace had come to us and made us alive in Christ Jesus, so He continues to supply His grace to us in ways that we cannot imagine. Ways that we cannot control. And so I want to end by reading these comforting words from Psalm 121. A psalm of ascent. A psalm of ascent is a psalm that the Jews would recite by memory as they made their way, as they pilgrimaged to Jerusalem for the festivals, for the Feast of of Tabernacle and the Passover. They would recite these on their way up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was elevated. So it's the song of ascents. And here's what it says. It's a short psalm. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.